Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books and in Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkar, and more importantly, I have the pleasure today of speaking with Dr. Christopher Jane Miller, a professor at the Arihante Institute. We'll be talking about all things Jain, Jainism. What is Jainism? What is the Arihante Institute? And uh, we'll see where the conversation takes us. Christopher, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Raj. It's good to be here. Yes, actually, in real time, uh, it's welcome back to the podcast because we recorded a podcast about Christopher's fascinating brand new book, Embodying Transnational Yoga, and that'll be out in a couple of weeks. But this one here will be a bonus one uh, above and beyond the, the the Thursday rhythm of the podcast release. We have a one or two bonus ones a month. So here we are. First one you're hearing, but second one we're recording, just to confuse you thoroughly. Um, so uh Christopher Jane Miller, tell us about the Jane. Tell us about uh, that that middle name of yours and and how you attained it, if you would be so kind. I'd be happy to. Thanks, Raj. So yes, I was not born Christopher Jane Miller, but I now go by and write by, as you see on my book title and, and or my book name and so forth, Christopher Jane Miller. And this really came about in 2021 when I was nominated to be the first non-Jain, non-Indian member of one of Jaina's executive committees. And that executive committee was the Ahimsa Meals and Fasting Committee. And our charge was to serve 100,000 vegan meals to people in need in the lead up to and on Thanksgiving uh, holiday in the United States. And so a lot of people are without food during that time. And the Jains do a lot of different food drives and work like that. And I worked really hard with my co-chair, Dilip Parekh, and the two of us with the president of Jain at the time, Mahesh Vadher, were able to pull together the Jain community globally, really, and serve 150,000 meals. So we broke our goal, and we also committed some people to fast on Thanksgiving. And out of all of that, uh, someone along the way said, uh, Dr. Uh, Shailendra Pavia said online in a meeting, hey, you're more Jane than we are, Chris, you should change your middle name to Jane, uh, because I had done a lot of work with them up to that point. And so uh, I was honored when he asked me, I would never ask to change my name to Jane. Of course, I'm very sensitive to issues of cultural appropriation and misrepresentation. But when I was invited by a member of the Jane community, a senior leader in the Jane community to do so, I, I quickly accepted. And I always felt Jane and I always appreciated the Jane tradition. And so since then, it was Easter Sunday on you know, in a meeting that we had with the president of Jaina, where they invited me to the, change my name to Jane, my middle name to Jane. I've been writing and publishing under the name Christopher Jane Miller since then. So that's the story of my name. I hope you like it. So um, one fateful Sunday, one fateful Easter Sunday, no less, you had a resurrection as a Jane. I had a resurrection of sorts. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, exactly. congratulations. Clearly, clearly, um, 
it sounds as if it wasn't a question of uh, providing a title or a label that you were to grow into. It sounds as if it was akin to naming what already was in, in their view or how they saw you. Yeah. And in some ways, how I, I guess I saw myself in some ways as well. So it just it seemed to line up. And, you know, before that point, I had been engaged with the International School of Jain Studies. I had been studying Jain tradition, teaching Jain tradition at the university. And as a result, I, I kind of felt like I was starting to uh, become Jain, so to speak. And a lot of Jains will often say that. They, they'll say, you know, everyone is Jain or it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who you are, what tradition you are. You don't have to convert from your tradition. And they never asked me to convert or anything like that. But they said, they said, uh, what's more important is is what you do than what you actually believe. And they said, that's why I think uh, Shailendra said, uh, you know, Chris Miller is more Jane than we are. He was making kind of a, a sarcastic remark. But what he meant by that was that, you know, he, he saw in me the, the values that he and Jane's hold dear to their heart, I guess you could say. Um, and I, and I, it was a humbling and, and uh, also a very exciting moment for me to take that invitation. Well, time and time again, when teaching continuing studies uh, and teaching sort of comparative religion broadly and maybe Hindu studies more specifically, uh, a common um, categorization, characterization that seems to hold traction to students is the idea of orthodoxy versus orthopraxy. The idea that uh, in Indic traditions, in, in the various Hinduisms and Buddhisms and Jainisms, that, that really um, beliefs, particularly in Hinduisms, I would say, Beliefs can be all over the place from what we would think of as, you know, um, monotheistic, polytheistic, monistic, uh, even atheistic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yet there's this emphasis on praxis, uh, on what one does. And indeed, the the overarching um, conceptual framework for all Indic religions is what? Karmic theory, a theory of, of, of what one does and the consequences of what one does. So so it's an interesting distinction that... that, that um, Many of my students have uh, currently come from uh, uh, Judeo-Christian backgrounds primarily, and some of them are practicing, some of them aren't. Many um, at the Hinduism school, they're, they're, they're taking up uh, practices for their own mindfulness or their own spiritual evolution or their own edification. And it's fascinating to see that syncretism. Um, so Jainism, what are some of the, what's the draw? What's the draw to Jainism? What are some of the unique hallmarks? Or tell us a bit about this this uh, very important, but also relatively obscure to most people, religion knows, known as Jainism. Yeah, I guess a little bit through my own personal story reflects probably a broader story of people particularly who were not born Jain or not, and or not born in India and how they received this tradition and what attracted to me me to it initially, which was I took an undergraduate course. And during that undergraduate course, I had a professor who was Dr. Christopher Chapel, who we both know, who was teaching us Indic tradition. So we saw Buddhism, we saw Hinduism, we saw Jainism. And when we saw Jainism, we were watching a documentary by Michael Tobias, which you've probably seen the one on Ahimsa, where it's a very, it's very introductory notion or introduction to the uh, documentary into the notion of Ahimsa of nonviolence. And 
what that made me realize as I was studying and writing and learning about the tradition was that for the first time in my life, I saw that nonviolence was even an option. I had been raised in a very, uh, you know, suburban American culture where we didn't think about what we did uh, very much. We just did whatever we wanted as teenagers and everything. We were behaving badly. And, you know, there were fights around us in high school and all these things. And I never thought of nonviolence even being an option. And so when I, as an undergraduate, saw this for the first time, some kind of light bulb went off that, oh, here's a tradition that offers uh, the option for nonviolence. There's so much violence in our world. And uh, what do we do about it? And so that was the initial attraction, the, the attraction to the notion of nonviolence, the way that people live their lives. For example, watching uh, Jane ascetics walking barefoot through India was uh, exciting to see for the first time, you know, as, as many undergraduate students have that experience. But then also seeing how the lay people lived and seeing their commitments to certain dietary practices that were nonviolent vegetarianism and increasingly now within the community veganism. Seeing all that, uh, to me, gave me, uh, I guess you could say, a cultural or philosophical alternative approach to life and worldview that was transformative. And I think a lot of students have that with with yoga. It happens with yoga with me as well. Um, but I think this is kind of a broader thing that happens when people study these Indic traditions today and, you know, in history that they they get attracted to these alternative ways of being in the world that they hadn't once been uh, introduced or had never been introduced to. So uh, with this tradition being so committed to nonviolence and, and and promoting this kind of lifestyle, that's really the first kind of anchor that drew me in and started to get me to question my own way of being in the world, so to speak. Fascinating. So when one is perhaps teaching Jainism in a world religion setting or in a comparative religion context in some sense, what does one say? How does one present Jainism sort of on the spectrum of world religions or in comparison to other traditions or Indic traditions in particular? Yeah, I, I think I teach it in from both, I guess you could say South Asian, but also global perspectives. And I came into it from the perspective of global perspectives because I was occupying and still do occupy a position that's fundamentally uh, funded and endowed by the Jain community. Um, and what that, what they're trying to teach through that uh, particular perspective is that there is this tradition or set of traditions that comes out of India that has for a very long time, for thousands of years, been committed to nonviolence. And this tradition oftentimes is connected to the 24th Tirtankara, Mahavira, right, who, who achieved eventually uh, enlightenment after achieving omniscience. And this is, I mean, this is kind of the way the story goes, right? Um, and that's sort of how I teach it at the beginning, fundamentally at the beginning. But as one, of course, digs into the anthropological and historical dimensions of this tradition, one begins to see that it's very complicated and that uh, even we scholars, and I don't think I'm the only one who teach this tradition and have been transformed by this tradition, I'm certainly not the only one, uh, occupy a very particular place in the diaspora, in a globalized Jainism, uh, espousing in some ways, or at least presenting principles of nonviolence and so forth and non-possession. And in doing so, uh, we, you know, we have to be also cognizant of that, that we're, we're presenting it from this very uh, particular perspective, but still in some ways, you know, in many ways, believe that it, it does have some profound transformative potential for our students and, and, and as it has for ourselves. What are some opportunities to study Jainism? Uh, so recently, the Jaina's Academic Liaison Committee uh, has been endowing positions in U.S. universities around the country. Uh, 
And what these positions have done is opened up opportunities for scholars to teach Jain tradition in these particular institutions. So they're all over North America, and there are several now coming into, into Europe. So one option is to go into a university, take a course with a professor, just as I did, very much like I did, and have the opportunity to do that. The other thing that has emerged is the ability to somehow learn about the Jain tradition online, right? So there's great websites like Jainpedia is a good one. You can go on and read. You can watch videos on other websites. Um, the online opportunities seem to be growing. And that is where Arihanta Institute came in during the pandemic. We saw the opportunity during the pandemic to start to form a nonprofit organization, which we are, that would seek to, through its mission, to democratize Jain studies online. And when we say Jain studies online, we want to bring that same quality out of the classroom that people would get in one of these university settings. And some of these professors from these university settings actually are participating in this and allow students from around the world to be able to join the courses and study with us online from subject area experts in Jain studies from around the world. And so that's what we've embarked on here at Arihanta Institute is to be able to take what is available currently around the US, some places in Europe, and bring it online in a way that people will be able to access it from wherever they are in the world. So is it currently a credit or a non-credit setup? Yeah, so right now we are, we've been operating for just over a year. We started in April, 2022. And so we are working towards accreditation. We're currently a nonprofit 501c3 uh, educational institution. Legally, that's what we are. Uh, we're working towards accreditation, but we do offer an accredited degree in collaboration with our partners at Claremont School of Theology, which is in Los Angeles, California, but also has hybrid and these remotely available master's degrees online. And so what we are offering is a joint degree with our partners at Claremont called Engaged Jane Studies. So that's a master's degree people can do online where they learn various dimensions of Jane studies, the Jane tradition, as well as languages and some interreligious and comparative courses that you can take there as well. So that's in a remotely available program that we currently offer that is accredited, um, even though we are still working our way towards accreditation, which as you know, takes some time because you have to you have to really work through and make sure you tick all the boxes and <laughs> meet all the requirements and everything, which I think is important. Uh, and so we're, we're doing that actively. Yeah. And so the tell us a bit perhaps about the various courses or the various instructors. Are they are they uh, PhDs? Are they profs? Are they practitioners? Are they both? Yeah, it's a combination. So we have basically two different levels of study that you can do with us. We have certificate level study that's both either live or self-study. So if there's courses you want to take on your own time, that's also a possibility. And those courses are certificate level and they're taught by both professors, PhD professors like you and I, uh, or it could be uh, someone from the community, a prominent teacher within the community uh, offering courses as well. So we, we have a full range of courses across that spectrum and uh, they can be taken with subject area experts in Jane studies, professors in Jane studies and other allied fields of inquiry, like critical animal studies. Um, and then, and then again, prominent practitioners from, from within the community who also offer courses uh, in like Pachala style for the children, for example, or alternatively adult level courses, but that are just the one-off so that they don't have to commit themselves to a full and entire program. On the other hand, we have the MA in Engaged Jane Studies, which offers a more fully robust and systematic kind of approach 
to Jane's studies to try to give students more of a, a complete foundation if they want to get an MA and then and or go on and do a PhD afterwards. So then these might perhaps be um, uh, useful supplements uh, to undergraduate students or folks who are looking to deepen their interest, whether they're whether they're in university programs or not, if I understand correctly. Yes. Yes, yes, yeah. Thanks for making that point. So, yeah, we've we have found it outside of the Jane community. So, the Jane community, there's people within the Jane community who take our courses, but people outside the Jane community tend to be, on the one hand, you know, people who come from the vegan world who want to learn about the Jane tradition. They want to learn about Jane philosophy because they've heard of ahimsa before, but they want to know more about the one of the traditions that espouses it so highly. We also have uh, sometimes scholars will come take courses from us who want to learn about the Jain tradition. We've had philosophers, for example, who are really interested in the topic of like Anekantavada uh, and, and other dimensions of Jain yoga, for example, who will come take our courses because they want to integrate Jain doctrine and philosophy into their current work to see what it does to their to their work. So we've had a lot of interesting um, conversations with people from academia who come in to take some of our courses as well uh, to to then take that into whatever it is they're already in the middle of doing. And of course, yes, we've had students, uh, undergraduate students. I just got a message from a student from UCLA today in, in California saying, you know, I just completed this assignment. This is really exciting. Uh, so this is an undergraduate who's just interested in learning about the tradition, but is not taking it for college credit necessarily. Um, they're just taking it uh, as a one-off because they're really interested in learning about the tradition. So yeah, I think it's a great supplement to, to let people have access to experts in different subject areas in, in Jane studies to be able to then uh, bring that into their whatever line of work they're already doing. Yeah, it seems comparable, uh, diff a slightly different subject area, but I, I, I teach online continuing studies at the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies. And uh, the courses are, they're, you know, they're continuing studies courses. Um, they're with a, within an edict paradigm primarily. I mean, you know, practitioner, you know, various people interested in Indic and practice will come at various levels of personal investment, but those courses are uh, more scholarly courses. Um, uh, and there's a variety of it. There are people who come from degree programs. There are people who come because they can't get that training at the university, wherever they are in the world. There are people who come just because they have a personal interest. They're lifelong learners. They, they you know, they have, they're, they're sort of, they have their own spiritual interests and want to learn the academic side of things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, one of the things that really excites me about this, I haven't looked closely at the school, and part of that was purposeful because I wanted to be fresh for you to teach me in real time about it before I nerd out about it. But I will nerd out about the, about the, uh, I'll die, take a deep dive at some point because I find myself located at sort of um, uh, online education, like like sort of index studies, online education. So whether it's, it's my own school, whether it's the OCHS, whether it's um, yogic studies, whether it's embodied philosophy, I've, I've had, I've covered, well, I guess I have my own school, which I wouldn't cover on the podcast because it feels too, you know, uh, I'd, I'd rather not, <laughs> but I mean, but I mean, I've had uh, you probably the fourth or fifth such platform that we're covering only because I think podcasts and online education go hand in hand. And I'm, and I'm personally very much interested in continuing studies education and online education. So I find it fascinating. And I, I really feel like we're in the midst of a movement that we're not going to fully understand for a couple of decades, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think we saw that opportunity that you're kind of describing here uh, during the pandemic of, of people wanting online education and then even afterwards still sticking around and because we all saw the promise in it right um and and i i like that you brought up uh, oxford center for hindu studies as well 
and, and the sort of edict approach. And I think you're right, at least for those of us who are philosophy or anthropology or his, history or some sort of academic, we have some kind of academic background. We're teaching from this edict perspective. We're teaching from a very critical perspective with the knowledge that the people that we're teaching are probably practitioners or believers of some sort in what it is that we're teaching. Uh, so we're trying not to sacrifice uh, that as well, that kind of emic perspective, but to kind of give those emic perspectives a little bit more of a critical edge that that they wouldn't find anywhere else in Jane studies uh, on online necessarily, right? So it's a it's a blend of these. I mean, we might we might think of it in some way sometimes uh, as as a as a Jane theological school in that we're also bringing in all of these practitioners from the Jane community who are very of course opinionated about the things. And oftentimes what will happen is when you're taking a course with us, it's the first time, like when I took my first Christian theology course, first time having grown up Catholic, that I'm being exposed to these critical edict approaches to the study of the tradition. And so uh, it, it it's often enlightening, a little bit um, difficult sometimes for people, but also very exciting for them to, to see like this academic approach to the study of religion through uh, the lens of Jane studies, so to speak, you know, using critical historical methods, phil philosophical methods, anthropological methods, and all these different things. So, yeah, we're we're very so, excited. So then, it's it's fair to say that the courses at our Hunt Institute are um, overarchingly edict, or, or for those listening who may not be aware of these nerdy religious studies terms, emic is from a, a within the tradition, sort of a perhaps a confessional, in some traditions, a faith based stance or experiential, and edict is is from without from outside of the tradition having more of an academic eye to the tradition so 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 now that we've uh, we've included that footnote for our listeners back to the main text uh, so is it fair to say that Ariane institute is primarily uh edict in its in its in its outlook yeah i would say it's primarily edict in its outlook um much in the way that you know for example i took courses in constructive theology during some of my my graduate studies my early graduate studies where we had these very critical uh, Catholic theologians who were very critical of their own tradition. And yet, you know, there's they, they didn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So knowing that there is some promise there, there is something there to be held on to, but with also without losing sight of all the various critical approaches uh, that can be taken to the study of religion, right? Um, so I, I feel like maybe in some ways as the co-founder that I and the VP of Academic Affairs as well here, that I'm kind of trying to infuse this tradition that I've been invited to partake, participate in with a little bit more of a critical edge uh, through the field of Jane studies, yoga studies, and other allied fields of inquiry that would take these kind of uh, critical approaches, which is always, you know, for a professor, um, and I'm sure you know from teaching at Oxford Center of Hindu Studies as well, that uh, it can be at times challenging for the new students, right? But if they can get through that first kind of, uh, challenging moment or set of moments, it, it can actually become quite enlivening for them. But yeah, so that is the the approach we take. Uh, and and you know, if if people go on our website and they look at individual courses, they'll see that uh, the the college university level professors approaches are very much like the approaches you would read, the course descriptions you would read if you were taking it a, a the course at a university, for example. Yeah, I think on one level, it's a question of managing expectations, of, you know, on behalf of students and students managing their own expectations of being clear on, on, you know, being clear, you know, part of the reason why I founded, for example, the New Wisdom School is because it's the only place where I share wisdom teachings publicly or technically publicly, I suppose it's a bit of a gated community. Um, 
that's but, but hilariously my students are brilliant and all have advanced degrees and some of them phds and mds and they're all they want the wisdom teachings but obviously mindful of, of history and, and society and culture and you know you know the, the, the clearly the mundane forces that shape uh religious traditions in addition so they're, they're super spiritual super smart but then you know when teaching at for example yogic studies or the ochs um, it's 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 the opposite where folks are looking for or what's on offer is the Enoch perspective, mindful of in various degrees, the Enoch perspective and dovetailing in or leaving space for in varying degrees. So do you find either um either as either a practitioner or as a scholar or as an administrator, do you find it all attention in terms of uh your 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 praxis and your relationship and your your lived experience with, with Jane traditions? Uh, versus your, your your critical scholarly inquiry thereof. Yeah, I do. Uh, I often feel, I think as a lot of scholars do, who, who are a little bit more public-facing um, and engaged with a community uh, of some sort of their own, I, I do often feel like I have to, there's a certain way to talk to, to different audiences. I don't have to, like, for example, explain to you the kind of critical approach, and I don't think I have to explain to you the practitioner approach either. There's some people like you who, who are kind of in both worlds as well. And then there's those who are in one or the other world more so than the other, and it's particularly when it comes to the community, um, you know, tensions come up. And uh, in, in, in terms of when we talk about things like Jainism and science, this is always a good example that I give. Uh, we realize that what we read in a Jain text is not necessarily, or may, but it may not necessarily uh, agree with what we find in, in from a modern scientific perspective. So uh, using the scientific method. And so when those things come up, when you read in a Jain text that the world is flat, or you read in the Jain texts that certain animals fall into certain categories that modern science simply wouldn't uh, agree with, those are those moments of tension that I have in class. I'm teaching a course in Jane doctrine, Jane philosophy right now that just came up last week about the animals. Where do the, all these animals fit uh, within the different sense classifications? These things come up and, and often trigger from within the community certain responses of, of you know, uh, when we talk about caste, when we talk about any of these really difficult things that are, that are hard conversations to have, um, but important conversations to have. And I think like the most enlightening thing for me or the 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 most exciting thing for me is when students are able to push through that difficulty to the other side and then kind of accept that yes this is the way it is um and and they can they don't have to leave the tradition just because not everything is what they thought it was but they can be a more informed member of the tradition maybe than they were before they came into a class or into the program or something like that yeah yeah it's really fascinating it's really um i've so I find that at all the different platforms at which I teach, they are there is um, there's a very insightful question um, uh, that John Coyne asked me at a Michigan State University for a, a public talk I did online from Toronto via Zoom. And uh, the question was along the lines of, well, you're public facing intellectual and, you know, you talk to specialists, you talk to practitioners, like, you know, what's that like? And it really forced me to consciously understand what I was doing. And it's akin to code switching, but it's also yeah. a spectrum. It's a spectrum, um, you know, where, you know, uh, you know, just coming back from the Dubrovnik International Conference for the Epics and Puranas, that, you know, that's specialist. That's that's as intellectual as it gets. Yeah. Um, right. Versus sort of teaching undergrads versus a public talk versus a talk to a yoga studio versus a talk among practitioners versus, um, you know, personal initiation into wisdom teachings. Right. So it's various levels of experiential versus empirical is how I look at it. 
And uh, one of the things that has served me well over the years is to uh, advocate uh, or suggest or posit a division of labor between the outer physical empirical world of which, you know, in my view, science is obviously the, the rightful arbiter. Uh, the scientific method is a, is a methodology, not an ideology. Far too many people relate to it as an ideology and they think it'll save them, quote unquote. Um, but it's a methodology and, and it's it's the proper methodology for, for understanding what we can about the empirical universe without question. And so one of the things I, I try to convey to folks who um, are coming from a particular perspective or not is that, um, you know, I teach uh, ancient narratives and I call them, uh, I call it mythology. Now, there are many Hindus who would cringe that I call, you know, a Christian Arjuna a myth or mythic vignette on the battlefield or this or this or this. But but at the same time, I'm currently doing a, a deconstruction of Genesis and Exodus, talking about Abrahamic mythology. And without question, people would cringe. And yet, when I see mythology, I don't mean myth in the modern pejorative sense. I mean, these larger than life narratives that have a great deal to teach, irrespective of or in addition to their historical veracity, whether or not the Mahabharata war occurred, whether or not, you know, Yahweh parted the Red Sea for the Israelites, whether or not, you know, to my mind, when we're looking to ancient traditions for meaning, these are questions of meaning. Uh, and so there's tremendous power. It's, they are spiritually true, whether or not they're historically true in a certain sense. And so, you know, depending on, I guess, suppose the student who shows up, there's different uh, strategies and tactics that might be helpful. But it certainly is um, a tension because when folks feel the spiritual power of something, they want to then take the leap that everything being said is literally true. And this is no different than teaching uh, Jain creationism or um, Christian creationism, right? It's a, it's a, it's the same tension that we have. And so uh, it's interesting that you have decided to embrace the work of walking that line and, and sort of um, teaching practitioners in a critical, through a critical lens. Yeah. Yeah. And it really sounds like Raj from the way you're approaching it as well, you, that, that you, you get what I'm saying in terms of, um, being between these different communities, right? Um, I I think I'm just as comfortable like you are to go to the AAR, for example, and present a, a critical paper on whatever it is, as I am then walking into a Jain temple and hanging out with my Jain friends and having a conversation about you know Jain philosophy at Patshala with them. But both present different challenges to me as a scholar, uh, because in one sense in one place if i'm at the aar having some kind of conviction about some kind of experience i had doesn't go that far right that's not what uh that's not what the method is interested in knowing um and when i go into the jain temple the history may not be as interesting as the experience of living in the community of the practitioners themselves and all the things that, that happen as a result and um so i i i guess i have to admit like sometimes i am uncomfortable in one or the other of the places because i don't know how to convey one, these two aspects of my experience, having been trained in theology, a bit of Jain philosophy, yoga philosophy, and, and, and training, uh, and, and being a practitioner, and then also being very committed to the critical methods that you're describing, that I also find totally fascinating and interesting. And when they don't always line up, um, I don't necessarily, uh, you know, it, it can make me uncomfortable, but I also uh, uh, just have to kind of admit that this is the, this is, these are two different ways of knowing. Um, and I, and I do write yeah. about that, I think in my book as well, in embodying transnational yoga, that's a lot of what my book is about is like, what happens when these two things in yoga and yoga studies don't really, 
line up? What what does that mean? Um, so well, it, it very much seems to me that there there are two modes that are complement complementary in a certain sense and for lack of better terminology i'm sure i could write a book on each term but um i think of them as the experiential motive of knowing and the experiential sorry the the empirical mode of knowing mediated by the senses and 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 instruments of measurement um, observation like there's the there's the empirical mode of knowing and there's the experiential mode of knowing and the empirical mode of knowing is science it's 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 what we can know to be true of the physical universe and our and our place within it um the experiential mode of knowing is you know anybody who's paid attention to their inner being knows that you know love is more than chemicals <laughs> well maybe for certain objects it is chemicals but you know if you're lucky enough to meet somebody uh where you know it's much more than chemicals because you wouldn't really care what they looked like the next week or the next year or the next decade it's something beyond just the you know, there's sort of this um, primate physiology of ours. And so this is an experiential, uh, this is something that we experience of the inner world. And so far too many brilliant intellectual, uh, you know, far too many brilliant people pay little or no attention to the inner life. And far too many spiritual people can't think straight for the life of them. And so every once in a while, you have people who who can do both, but no one's good at everything. If you if you're really good at, you know, at whatever uh, whatever sporting analogy you want to use, in but you're right-handed, I mean, switching to your, you know, swinging with your left hand, it's it's going to be it's going to be so it's difficult to not everybody trains all aspects of themselves, obviously. So there certainly right. is a tension without question, but I I really feel that that tension is a tension that's at the heart of religious studies and needs to be sorted out for the future of religious studies as a discipline. That's probably a conversation for another day because there needs to be a way in which religious studies continues what it needs to do, which is the empirical critical study of religion in a way that nevertheless nevertheless creates space for the inner life of adherence and students and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's not the, it's not the, 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 the Dharma, if you will, of, 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 of the world religions prof to spiritually cater to their students, quite the contrary, frankly, it's also not, it's also their Dharma to not crush the spiritual hopes and dreams and experiences of their students. And so. Well put. Yeah. It's not, it's not both of those things. (laughs) I agree. You know, Um, we're, we're working on a, um, if I, I can just mention it briefly, I didn't want to forget. We, we just signed a contract with SUNY, which I hope to do a podcast with you about in the future on this book that we just signed uh, for a book on engaged Jainism, which is drawing from the field that we both know engaged Buddhism. Um, but taking a very, uh, Jain specific approach to this topic, because there's many things about the Jain tradition that are very different from the, especially the living community and its history from the Buddhist tradition. And I'm writing a chapter right now about a contemporary Jain artist who lives in Germany, uh, that will be in that book. And what this artist said, what drew me to this artist, who's a Jain, uh, about his mural that he painted on the East Side Gallery at the Berlin Wall. He said, uh, the artist speaks, uh, you know, the artistic language is a is a heart, is a language that comes from the heart, basically, that even intellectuals do not understand. And when he said that, I said, I know what you're saying, because I, you know, I've done dabbled in a little bit of art myself in the past, and there is something sort of uh, experiential, let's just say, about art, right? And working with artists, of course, and at the same time, when I looked at his mural on the Berlin Wall that I'm writing about, it's the second one in the East Side Gallery. It's a picture of a yogi. Um, I was immediately, I saw so many layers of history, not only in the wall itself, but in the image of the mural itself, that 
you know, the artistic piece itself may have come from the heart, but at the same time, I, I saw all of these other influences that this artist is not kind of um, making explicit, so to speak, that we would know about from reading the history of yoga and so forth that need to come out. And so I'm writing this chapter right now for this, this volume that we're putting together on engaged Jainism to show how like there's a Berlin history wall to this whole thing that has allowed this mural to of a yogi to come into existence. And at the same time, this artist seems to have something, some kind of special inspiration that is driving that. That's hard to clamp down and as you say, crush, right? I, I don't want to crush it. And I think there is something there. So yeah, it, it's bringing together these two different experiences, I guess you could say, um, well, in well, the piece art, itself. Yeah. Yeah, well, to my mind, art is larger than life to be art. We take it for granted. But, you know, for example, uh, some years ago, probably close to 20 years ago, there was a painting that just utterly caught my eye. I think I was moving offices. I was working. I always worked some kind of office monkey work to put myself through school or catering or coordinating or something. And we're moving offices. And there was this, 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 this painting that just utterly, it was like uh, peering into the beyond for a moment, right? And um, I learned a couple of years later, I think it resurfaced again in my life. It was actually Raphael's School of Athens, but it was just utterly captivating. And then you you dive into the you dive into the symbology of Aristotle pointing downwards, you know, you know, you know, the nitty gritty yeah. left brain yeah. and then Plato yeah. pointing upwards, you know, the expansion of the right brain and they complete each other. And there's this idealized narrative of ancient Athens and what's thought to be really the founding of the academy, really. It says Plato's Academy. And then, but on top of that, you have overlaid uh, 2,000 years later, 500 years ago for us, the contemporaries of Raphael and the Renaissance that he's included in the painting. And there's so many layers. And obviously, you can't begin to fully appreciate the painting without understanding the history of Western thought. Absolutely. Yeah. Y yet, well, without but... question, absent any of that, the power, the true power the archetypal power, the energetic power of what he's done has very little to do with the sociocultural piece, with what he's put together. Yeah. It catches your eye like a jewel, like a gem. And you need not understand where the gem comes from necessarily or who mined it or why, under what auspices that might help. But I think there's a, obviously there's a sociocultural piece through, it, art, through which art is filtered. Mozart's is genius, you know, today he would have been whatever pop star, classical star or whatever star, you know, who knows? He would have been Elvis. Who knows? But I'm saying his genius was his 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 artistic ability that's larger than life was was obviously filtered through the fact that he was born in in what what um 1700s Vienna, you know, to 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 to, to part in a particular tradition in a to family musicians, et cetera, et cetera. But to my mind, Art is something, you know, music, visual art, it, we can't quite reduce it to its mundane aspects. It's one of these things where you, you, it's more than the sum of its parts, it seems to me. Absolutely. Yeah. So clearly we've, we've, we've gone off into the ether. So Jainism, Jain studies, um, tell us a little bit about Jain studies as a discipline, either, you know, is it is it a burgeoning field? Is it a dwindling field? Are there changes in the field? You know, tell us a bit about the study of Jainism at the academy. Yeah, I think the study of, of Jainism has been around for quite some time. Um, it's it's not it's not a new field, so to speak, uh, of course. And it has, like many other South Asian disciplines of South Asian religion, it has its roots in some of the colonial moments uh, of of colonial 
empire trying to understand religion and nobody really knew what to do with the Jains at first. Uh, are they Hindus? Are they their own tradition? What are they? Um, but in, towards the end or even earlier than that, the, the beginning of the the uh, 19th century and then going into the, the late 19th century, there's a more of a recognition that the Jains are their own tradition. They have their own ritual traditions, beliefs, philosophies, and so on and so forth. And a field of study, particularly in Europe, but then also in North America, starts to congeal around this, this identified tradition, if you will, right? So, uh, but at the same time, uh, there's Jains in India uh, who are also participating in this conversation and very interested in showing that they too are a world religion uh, around this time, late 19th century and coming into the early 20th century. So much so like with yoga, with Vivekananda, uh, of course, Virchan Gandhi, was at the Parliament of the World Religions with uh, Vivekananda, right? So Virchan uh, Gandhi being the Jain representation. Um, and so Jain studies has been around for a while. That's all I'm trying to say. It, it shares some of the history, some of the colonial history that other traditions and South Asian religions share. Uh, but the Jain tradition being, you know, this sort of wealthy tradition or set of traditions, if you want to put it that way, has always taken education as something important, valued it highly. And even more recently, so maybe in the past 10 years or so, a number of positions have been endowed by the Jain, by Jain families in North America and in Europe, as I was mentioning at the beginning, at various universities around North America and Europe, uh, which has created, uh, I would say, the growth of a field in some ways, because there are so many opportunities now for students to get their PhD in Jane studies to do an MA and PhD in Jane studies, and then go on and actually find a position, which as we know, is a very difficult thing to do these days uh, in academia in general. So there's a lot of postdoc and, and, uh, and tenure track positions being created in the field. And one of the things I really appreciate, I think about what Jane's are doing is that who are contributing to this project, particularly through Jaina and also through Ari Hunter Institute, uh, which is, uh, we have some people on the board at Jaina, is the level of academic freedom that the scholars have, that we have. Oftentimes when a religious tradition tries to endow a position, they want to convert people or, you know, there's some kind of, uh, there's some kind of objective behind there to convert people. And what I often hear when I've been in the meetings with the, the ALC, the Academic Liaison Committee, who are making these positions is that, you know, one of the fundamental pillars of their approach to these various schools, universities, is that when they make an endowment, that the scholar who takes the position from whatever discipline they're coming from within Jain studies will have their full academic freedom, as well as the selection committee, as far as I've seen, has always been uh, from inside decided by the university, not by the Jain community itself. Um, and so you have this growing field of Jain studies of scholars who are trained in the field or some allied field of inquiry, who are able to occupy these positions uh, at very well-known institutions all over the place, uh, and, and which is causing a kind of burgeoning of the field of Jane studies and opening many new doors, I think, and opportunities for people to to teach the tradition and learn it. Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, just this morning, uh, just, uh, just uh, serendipitously, a few minutes before this call, we received a note on uh, one of, for the, for the many of you who aren't South Asianists, uh, this serve that we're all, or many of us are on uh, called now Sari, it's called Risa. Uh, from Eva de Klerk, who is a, a scholar of Jain narratives at Ghent University in, in Belgium. Um, and she was posting a, a postdoc 
um, that obviously among traditions that would be welcome would be chain studies. Um, it's fascinating that we have these opportunities, um, and it's especially um, fascinating that uh, the chain community is funding. Uh, for those of you who don't have a context, could you give a sense of how many positions have been funded over 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 how how long in the last couple of years, for example? Yeah, so if we look at maybe the last decade or so, and I'm I'm rough, I'm estimating, but uh, the last I heard was there are somewhere between thirty and thirty-five various positions that have been funded in universities, many of which are tenure track positions. Some of them are postdocs and things like that, but between 30 and 35, I would say, um, or so, which, which is, is quite, quite a few. Which is right? mammoth. Well, that's mammoth. Like to fund even half a dozen positions is a, an enormous uh, financial investment. So it's, it's, it's interesting that, 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 a, there's that sort of uh, capital um, uh, at their avail, and and B, that the, that it would be spent on funding positions at the university. And uh, perhaps most fascinating uh, on a number of levels is, um, if I'm hearing what you're saying correctly, the scholars who would occupy these positions aren't necessarily beholden to the Jane community in any particular sort of um, sort of faith-based way. Is that correct? That's right. I mean, in my own experience of working now with them for about six years or so on on so many different projects, the Jane, the, the Janes, that is, um, I've always felt like I could just be myself uh, methodologically. Um, and I I think that's easier for me to say probably than others, because I'm more by I'm more buying in, I think, than some other scholars may into this tradition, so to speak. But when I look at the other scholars who occupy those positions, who are my colleagues, and some of whom teach actually on our platform, I don't see them being pressurized to deliver a particular message, so to speak. I, I see them having the freedom to deliver the, the high quality scholarship that uh, that they would anywhere else in, in any other position. But that being said, there is, of course, a lot of these positions have written into their, their charters that in some way, shape or form, the scholar will engage with and do programming with the Jane community, right? And so that often involves uh, roundtables, speakers, hosted speakers, but still even those those activities and events are still, you know, have that same spirit of academic freedom, so to speak. They just want the scholar to be, you know, engaged with the community in some way, shape or form. Uh, it, it, it seems broadly comparable to in Buddhist studies, uh, the Numata chair, for example. Their, their, their chairs, you know, their, their various chairs, I don't know the exact specifics because I'm, of course, I'm more, more attuned to Hindu studies, but there was one at the University of Calgary, for example, when I did my PhD there, and there are, there are academic posts, but they're also, um, they also liaise with, uh, with, with community and in, in, in their public talks, uh, speaker will come in, et cetera, et cetera. It's interesting. I mean, um, I defended in what, 2015 and, um, uh, you know, since then, uh, I've opted to stay in Canada rather than go to America. But irrespective, I mean, there hasn't been anybody looking for a tenure track position in Sanskrit narrative, to my knowledge. And so I've I've done my own thing. And here I am, it seems to be working for me, I'm able to produce and be connected and teach at a number of places. And so the, there are. It's not a question of being able to get a job. It's a question of the non-existence of jobs. <laughs> That's and right. So, so it's it's reassuring for those who are interested in Jane studies or currently uh, scholars, graduate students in Jane studies that your job prospects probably look uh, much better than those of religious studies abroad or or Hindu studies. Uh, you know, 
in, in particular, in, in my particular case. And so, yeah, <laughs> Russell McCutcheon, you know, a great sort of religious studies figure. He's really into talking about and thinking about and writing about ways in which universities can or perhaps should train uh, graduate students for careers beyond the academy proper. He's writing, uh, he's uh, editing a volume for some strange reason. I don't know why he's asked me to write a forward for it. So this is sort of on my mind these days. Uh, and, uh, you know, I guess there's two ways to think of it. Yeah, we have to sort of um, diversify our portfolio to apply our skills uh, beyond academic um, enterprise proper. And the other the other approach is endowing positions. <laughs> Right. Creating more positions. But of course, you know, outside of what's happening with the Jain community, I can't think of anywhere else in religious studies or Hindu studies where this is happening. It's very much the opposite of sort of professorships not being renewed and being sort of if somebody is to retire uh, or move on um, bureaucratically or existentially, uh, they, they uh, what happens here? We'll just uh, hire a sessional for indefinitely so it's it really is an interesting case in jane studies let's say it's unique would you say yeah it's unique i i feel like it's unique in its expansion and in, in its its growth and its ongoing growth because they haven't stopped i mean they're still they're still going and in, I, from the traditions perspective the people who are making these rather large donations from their estates or from wherever they're they're making these donations these families that are making them they see it as part of the institution of dana you know of giving selflessly for some good cause and particularly education. And, and I think part of what they want, what their goal is in doing so is to just to keep the Jain tradition relevant. And the, one of the best ways to do that is to have people having public scholarly conversations about it, writing about it, publishing about it. Um, you know, they, of course they, they're happy when people take on their practices or commit themselves to ahimsa or become vegetarian or vegan. Of course, they, they love when that, that happens. But I think first and foremost, what I see in, in all the giving is really a, a desire, a wish amongst the community to, to keep it relevant, to show that it's relevant uh, to society. So you often see these positions that are being created intersecting with what we talked about in the last podcast, you mentioned nonviolence studies and allied fields of inquiry like this, where uh, like at Arihanta Institute, we have courses that teach about all these things. We have different learning areas that talk about climate change, animal advocacy, social justice, uh, well-being, you know, and self-care, professional ethics. We try to bring all of these different issues of our times into conversation with the Jane tradition, critically, of course, but to show that there is some promise here, right? In the end, uh, there is there's some new ways of thinking and being in the world that the tradition can show us. And I think that those who are making the donations um, have that as kind of a, maybe a secondary perspective on on why they're doing it. What are some of the, how to say, um, relevancies, applications? What are some areas uh, in the world today where you feel Jane thought might be of service? There's So on our website, we have outlined six learning areas and two of the most promising that I've seen so far in terms of student engagement and interest in the topic itself our, our climate change and environment learning area and our animal advocacy and biodiversity area, which of course are not mutually exclusive. And oftentimes the content can overlap between those. They can be cross-listed, so to speak. You know, climate change is one of the biggest existential threats ever, right, uh, that we all face. And with regard to the way that Jane's 
live or the, with regard to the way that their philosophy espouses that one should live. I think that the Jain lifestyle as espoused in, in these philosophies uh, and as we experiment within our own bodies and practice cuts out a lot of the things that contribute to the climate crisis. Uh, for example, and this goes in then into animal advocacy and biodiversity, if animal agriculture is such a major threat as science is and the IPCC is showing it is and the UN is showing it is towards climate change, if it's one of the biggest threats, and Jains are espousing a lifestyle of ahimsa nonviolence through dietary praxis and show that it can be done in daily life, then that seems like a huge opportunity uh, for people to reflect on why they eat the way they do, to kind of look at the 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 social conditioning that we have, that we have to eat certain kinds of foods when we don't really need them. Uh, and, and again, I mentioned that there's a lot of uh, Jains moving into uh, this the, the vegan lifestyle um, and promoting it in various ways on college campuses and doing things like this. I think that this this is one of the keys, of course, to to what could help us avert the worst of climate change. It also affects biodiversity loss. Animal agriculture is one of the biggest causes of biodiversity loss. Um, and so there are uh, the, the method that I usually take when I'm teaching these things is I start with the science and I say, okay, what is the IPC saying? What is the UN saying? What is the UN's SDGs telling us we need to do now? And then I, I I go into the tradition that I know the best, right? I go into the Jain tradition, sometimes into the yoga tradition as well. And I say, look, there were and are these practices that if we were to put them up against what the IPC is, C is telling us we need to do, uh, could have a dramatically significant impact and simultaneously be personally transformative for the person who takes them on. All that is, of course, not without sacrificing critical conversations around privilege and justice and these kinds of things, because uh, these also factor into who can who can even make these kinds of choices. But I think there is a segment of society that can and that the Jane tradition can speak to the segment of society and help them help us all move towards better solutions. Fantastic. Well, I think um, I think we are about time for today, so we should close. But thank you for the enjoyable conversation about Jane studies, the Ari Hunt Institute, um, et cetera, et cetera. Is there any anything else you'd like to say, add, or or ask before we close? Oh, yeah. One more thing, Raj, thank you, is that I almost forgot to mention that starting on October 2nd, we're going to be having a new online program that's totally free through Ari Hunt Institute called Dialogues in European Jane Studies, where we're featuring the research and scholarship of primarily young scholars uh, in Europe who are working on the Jane tradition uh, in conversation with senior scholars. And so we invite anyone to go to our website where they can register for that event for free. It starts on October 2nd and it will be almost every month, the first Monday of every month to learn about what's happening in European Jane studies. So we're doing that in collaboration with our partners at the University of Birmingham and Ghent University. It's a collaborative project that we're doing together. Excellent. Well, so glad we mentioned uh, Ghent earlier. There you are. Um, great. Well, thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today. Thank you, Raj. Appreciate it. 
For those listening, we've been speaking with Dr. Christopher Jane Miller on uh, Jane Studies, uh, the Ari Hunt Institute, uh, All Things Jane, Online Education, um, Ethics in Modern Times, you name it. Hopefully you've enjoyed this conversation a fraction as much as we have. Until next time, keep well, keep listening, keep reading, uh, and keep contemplating um, the power of Ahimsa. Take care.